I did my fucking homework for this one, I'll tell you. Welcome to the Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome with Wendy Bowlesby and Melissa Kirscher. Welcome, dear listeners, to another episode of Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. I am one of your co-hosts, Wendy, joined as always by the lovely and talented Melissa. And this week we have returning special guest star, it's like the love boat, Pat Harrigan. Hi. Yay, Pat. Yay, we. <laughs> Yay, me. Yay. He said yes twice. Yes. And tonight we are going to talk about... Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which was first a John le Carré novel, and then it was a BBC miniseries, and then decades later, it was a Oscar-nominated movie. Mm-hmm. I should say that the nomination was for uh, Gary Old. But Gary Oldman, not the movie, but his performance was nominated. Yeah, the, it, it mm-hmm. got three Oscar nominations. It was nominated for score. It was nominated for the screenplay, if I remember right, and definitely Gary Oldman. And definitely, oh, it's such a good performance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but won none of them, I assume? Uh, no. No, no, it, it won nothing that yeah. year. I forget when, who won Best Actor, but there was no yeah. way he was, his performance was going to win. I remember at the time that I watched it, I'm like, it was excellent. They're not going to give him an award for that. Yeah. It wasn't flashy enough. It was, and well, it's like the opposite of flashy. Yes. But I mean, we'll we'll get into that when we actually start talking about that movie. Um, but right now we're going to talk about the wine that Pat brought over. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so we have a Klein Zinfandel, vintage 2013. I don't drink a lot of Zinfandel and I need to remedy that because this is yeah. very d- drinkable. Yeah. It's very, mm-hmm. it's a light drinkable wine. Yeah. It's, um, not very dry. It's, um... It's from Lodi, California. <laughs> it's friendly. I, never, I would describe it as friendly. I never would have expected wine to come out of Lodi. Lodi is a no. place of factories in my world. <laughs> Do you know the Creedence Clearwater Revival song, Lodi? No, I don't. Oh, Lord, I'm stuck in a Lodi again. <laughs> it's, it's just he can't get out of it. I, I didn't assume anything came out of Lodi. Well, John okay. Fogarty didn't. Listeners, we're going to talk about Tinker Taylor's Soldier Spy and we are going to get into spoiler territory. If you do not want this spoiled, stop this episode right now <laughs> and at least go watch the movie. It's two hours of your life. Invest in that. Enjoy it. Come back. And then, you know, hopefully we'll convince you to read the book, maybe watch the miniseries or something like that. Okay? So we'll insert that back at the beginning. That's read the book speech. first, listeners. Read the Spoilers. book. Spoilers. Read the book. Spoilers. Let's uh, start with the novel. Yeah. Um, so, hmm. Pat, if I remember right, you're a fan of the author. Oh, yes. I've read most of John Le Carre, although looking at his... Uh, Is that list. how you say it? Because I always wanted to be Carre. John Le Carre. Yeah, I think so. I think you're probably more right than me. John For Le- a British man, that is a very French name. It's a pseudonym. Oh. He got it off a French street sign. 
Oh. His real name is David Cornwall. That's a very British <laughs> name. He's so yes, British. Now, okay. Now he Why did he want a French name? Uh, well, he just needed some sort of pseudonym because he was still working for the security services when he started publishing his first books. Ah. So he thought there might be an issue with that. Do you think? Yeah. It, I don't think it ever really mattered too much, and the secret's been out for quite a long time now, who he really is. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he got it off the got it off the street sign is the story that I've heard. But yeah, I've read most of the books. Um, I just noticed looking at his Wikipedia page that I'm like 10 years out of date. He keeps publishing yeah. books. So I think wow. Constant Gardner was the last one I read, and that was 2001. So I've got some catching up to do. But before that point, there's only a few that I've missed. I didn't realize did he you? did Constant Gardner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, did sure. you like it? Uh, the book is, yeah, I did. There's parts that are not so great because he's no longer enmeshed in the world of espionage. And <laughs> so like the elements that relate to working on a laptop and having computer encryption and things are embarrassingly bad. <laughs> uh, and he, he admits as much and even has his character throw the thing into the river at some point in the book because he just can't write. I remember liking the movie. Mm -hmm. It has Rachel Wise. Mm -hmm. It is uh, and Rachel Wise and Bill Nye. Bill Nye. Um, is it, it Rafe? Ray Fiennes, I think. Yeah. It's a much more upbeat mm -hmm. ending than the book, which is okay. considerably darker. But he wrote, now George Smiley, who is the main character yep. in Tinker Taylor, there were books where he was the main character before this and after this? Yeah, so this is his seventh book, John Lake Array's seventh book. The first two books are short mystery novels, Call for the Dead and A Murder of Quality. George Smiley is the main character in both. Um, they're... He's a retired spy at that point, solving some murders, and they're almost more like conventional murder mysteries. The third book, Spy Who Came In From the Cold. Which was a Richard Burton movie, right? Very good. Claire, yeah. Claire Bloom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, terrific book and uh, an equally good movie. Smiley is a secondary character okay. in there. He's also a secondary character in the next book, The Looking Glass War. Then there are two books that have nothing to do with any of this. And then um, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And Honorable Schoolboy, Smiley's People, and Smiley Returns a few books later for his swan song in a book called The Secret Pilgrim. And okay. then that's it for Smiley. Okay. Uh, the story goes that after the miniseries where Alec Guinness played Smiley, uh, it became increasingly difficult for Lacare to write the character of Smiley. Uh, he hmm. had finished The Honorable Schoolboy, he was working on Smiley's People, and he had originally planned a whole series of books with Smiley versus Carla. It could go on indefinitely or whatever, but he felt that he needed to wrap it up because he couldn't get Alec Guinness out of his head. It's just, we're done with Smiley. It's already been definitively done. And then uh, Guinness did the role again for Smiley's people. And that was essentially the end of that. Oh. Except for a little cameo in Secret Pilgrim okay. years later. I started Tinker Taylor. I wandered off, and I don't know how much of that was due to the book, how much of it was due to my life. I did find it, I found it engaging reading. I like, because I picked it up again and made a little bit more headway before tonight. And I find it engaging, but I find it so dense. Uh, it's, it's filled with names. It's jargony. Yeah. <laughs> it's filled with names, and it's filled with every paragraph is filled with detail about events so that you're you're constantly like wait who's that okay wait where are we in the timeline okay so this is this is this guy talking to this guy about things that happened a while ago with this other guy and it can get very it's it's a little like falling down the rabbit hole and 
And so I found myself taking notes just to keep track of who was who. <laughs> I actually started the book and got about 100 pages and went, I need to rewatch the movie mm-hmm. with Gary Oldman so I can get faces and names put together so I can keep better track. So that if I, I have a visual with the name, it's like, oh, Peter Gwillem. That's Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, Bill Hayden. That's Colin Firth. Okay, this helps mm-hmm. me. Well, here's a question for you, and maybe you too, Melissa. Um, yeah. Did you guys see the movie first, the film first? Yes. Oh, we both did. We we were at Butnamathon the year that uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy came out, and it it screened at Butnamathon before it was released. Okay, and did you grasp it at all? Oh, yeah. Really? I found the movie really easy to follow. Yeah. That's remarkable to me. Cause... See, I, I oh, well, yeah, the, the movie, I think, is tricky to follow you have to pay a lot of attention oh yeah but it's clear if you know that you're supposed to pay attention well it's a spy movie so i was like every little thing in here is a clue pay -hmm. attention yeah and so i was i didn't find it off-putting at all i found the characters engaging yeah i was i i could follow it 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 is an extreme i I, will get into it more when we get you know, when we really dig into the movie later on, but it, I, I find it to be an extremely efficient script and a really, really efficient directing job, which means if you blink, you miss something. So I, I, I think a lot of people found it very confusing just because we're not used to working that hard for a spy movie. Well, and also it's such a quiet movie. Yeah. I mean, no action. Mm hmm. I don't think there's even a fist fight. Well, Some people um, get shot. Yeah, yeah and uh, Cumberbatch yeah. gets to hit uh, Ricky Tar. Yeah, he gets. So there's one. There's a couple of punches thrown. There is some. Somebody does get shot, but it's not in the usual like yay action scene. Mm-hmm. It's very much. It's a cerebral movie. It's very quiet. It's very steady in its pace. I think it was a one-two punch of. Not only do you need to pay attention, but we're not going to help you out. Yeah. Yeah. You, you just got to commit to this. And I did. I loved it. I loved the 60s-ness of it. I was totally engaged. Well, since we're kind of on this track, should we just get into the the 2011 movie? Well, we were starting with the book. Yeah, we were. No, Okay, we can go back to the book and then really dig into the movie later. Yeah. It's sure. up to you guys. Okay. Well, okay. But, so, yeah. So, yeah, the book names, is so lots, many. Lots of names. And, and I, jargon. Lot lots jargon. and mm-hmm. lots of jargon. You've got the lamp lighters. You've got... Uh, scalp hunters, the, the scalp circus, hunters, the, uh, yeah, the, it, the it's mothers, of... the, you know, the, everything is referred to with some sort of jargon that you're like, I'm, I can't keep track of this. And then there's just the Britishness of it mm-hmm. and the fact that it's a dated novel. So you get a one, two punch of a lot of the languages, both outdated and culturally outside of my, you know, American sensibilities to where I'm, I feel like I'm having to translate all the mm-hmm. time. I tell people the story the first time I went to Scotland. I had just been to Paris and then I ventured on my own up to Scotland and I actually found Scotland to be more of an experience of feeling out of my depth and disconnected because in Paris there I wasn't going to understand them. They were speaking a different <laughs> language and so it meant that I I jumped in with both feet and I would, you know, just unashamedly like, I don't know what you're saying. Help me out here. But you go to Scotland and they're technically speaking English at you and I could not understand them. And I'm like, I feel like an asshole because I need to ask, what did you just, could you slow that down and speak 
slower for the dumb American. And it was a little like that reading the book of, I know that this is English, but the structures are very different. And I think what helped me get through the book, and I, I'm a very slow reader these days. It's, it's, it's a struggle for me to finish an entire book. I, I actually finished this book in a couple months, which is um, really good for me. And I'm, I'm proud of myself. But um, what I'm helped, proud of you, too. What, what helped me get through was, um, you know, a few chapters in, I realized, okay, I don't think I actually need to remember all the details. So I, I, I kind of started treating it like the big sleep where it's so convoluted that, you know, if you have a lot more fun, if you just kind of stop paying attention, so much attention and eventually stuff just does snap into place later on because, okay. because that's when the broader strokes start falling into place and, and everything else just kind of refers back and, and it does give you enough the book does give you enough information later on that you start tying back to things that were said earlier and that then it yeah. it starts making sense. Yeah, unlike The Big Sleep. Which unlike ne- The Big Sleep. Which never actually makes sense. Which never makes yeah. sense. Oh, Chandler. Um, <laughs> I did like, as you always do in a novel, you get better characterization mm-hmm. than oh, you could I ever get. Oh, I love the characters. The character, I mean, I like the way they describe each other. I love the way... You learn about who Smiley is more by how everybody else talks about him, reflects upon him, mm-hmm. reacts to him. Um, and, and it's really relationship heavy. I mean, it's 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 all about how each character regards another. It's just it's a spider web of relationships. Yeah, it's like, well, I recruited you. I'm your mentor. Okay, you were his boss. You were his runner. Mm-hmm. Um You and I came up at the same time, but you're sleeping with my wife. Um, Oh, by the way, I think you're bisexual. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He is. He is. Which isn't in the movie, but they totally changed Peter's character. It's in the miniseries. He definitely is in the miniseries. Actually, Colin Firth says it in the movie, too. Yeah. There's a boy, too. There's a boy. in the. Actually, it is referred to in the movie. Is it okay, It's never really directly referred to except for him saying oh there's a boy take care of him um, but there there are uh, near the end of the film when you see the uh, Hayden and uh, Prudo looking at each other during the party it's like oh yeah yeah well it, it's definitely we'll get there. into the movie yeah later but so since I didn't finish it answer me this why because Peter Gwillem which is the Benedict Cumberbatch character in the mm-hmm. movie um, mm-hmm. And he's a protege of Smiley, and he's the main one helping Smiley in in his investigation. Yeah, he's the deputy, mm-hmm. um, essentially. Well, he's the one who's sneaking the shit out of the circus for yeah. him. Cause, yeah. He's a leg man. Uh, yeah. Okay, I can't give you the plot, dear listeners. It's way too convoluted. But <laughs> the basics are that George Smiley used to be number two in command of MI6 until his boss, nicknamed Control, was forced out, and then he died of a wasting illness. Um, but when his boss was forced out, he was forced out too. So now he's retired. And then the government comes to him and is like, we think there's a mole. We can't trust anybody in the circus to investigate it, obviously. So we want you to do it covertly. Mm -hmm. And so he enlists Peter Gwillem, who is still in the service, to be sort of his leg man and get him the documents that he needs. And so he can conduct his investigation. So, but in the book, Peter is 
always going on about his girl Olivia or mm-hmm. whatever or, or Claire, 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 Claire what, yeah, she, she plays whatever. the flute yeah it's not yeah. Olivia it's Claire mm-hmm. yeah she, she's a, a music student and you know he's just pining but he's seriously obsessing about her and I'm just like why so I guess my question was well, does that ever pay off what was yes, the point it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's the same story in a different key to the rest of the book because all of the relationships that all of these characters are having are now in question they've known each other for years and so even somebody who he's literally sharing his bed with who he should know the most about becomes increasingly impossible for him to understand okay. mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's the same thing in a different key okay yeah. now that had started to happen as far as the in the book as i was it's because mm-hmm. there was a scene where they're talking to ricky tar and as that scene is progressing he's like what do i even really know about claire for all i know you know she drops these bombs and i'm just like what you were you're you were married you're you may be divorced now you're mm-hmm. not sure mm-hmm. <laughs> what yeah. do i even know about anybody it, it but, reinforces but, i'm sorry please continue uh, it, no. it reinforces the all male world of the story too mm-hmm. like mm. they can it, under they can think and think and think through male male relationships all day long for 400 mm-hmm. some pages in the book or whatever but as soon as you start to go into the female world it's impossible for most of these people even george even smiley can't do it doesn't really understand Anne. so and and i I think it's interesting misogynistic i think it's accurate i don't know if it's misogynistic on the part or is it just is it a product of its time i i don't i don't think le carré was misogynistic i I think he was actually fairly progressive in how he was writing that book but he was stating kind of the realities of the workplace of 1970 or it when would have been it? earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's no, early nineteen seventy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was nineteen seventy. So, um, but you know, obviously there there are very intelligent female characters in the book. There aren't many of them because it was a man's world at the time. And even the but, like uh, the one um, Irina, the not Irina, no, the, the the woman that he the, goes the, to the see, the retired woman from the circus. Oh yeah, yeah. the barrel, the barrel reed character, uh, yeah. Connie. 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 That's Connie. It. Connie Sachs. Connie who is so sharp and has put it together and has noticed things that are very important, but she basically gets, you know, patted on the head. That's nice, dear. And Mm -hmm. off you go. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to pay attention to you. Yeah. Yeah. And there's like one scene that I just read where Gwillem is pulled into a meeting at the circus. That's the best scene in the book. uh, So good. I love it. With Percy. Mm -hmm. And they're like, uh, (laughs) what about Ricky? You're having tea with him. And, yeah, every day. What the hell? I don't even know what's going on here. And there's one, and they even refer to it's it in the book woman. as the token woman. And Mo Delaware. Yeah, and mm-hmm. Percy keeps saying really sexist shit, and then like doing an aside to Mo, like "Sorry, dear," or you know, "You'll forgive me" or whatever. And I'm like, okay, I feel, I do feel like Lacare in that scene was very definitely satirizing that viewpoint Mm -hmm. so i would believe he was more progressive in his personal viewpoints but well yeah and he has a bisexual character and yeah yeah, you know and it and it's not a big deal is made of it well and also the relationship with smiley and his wife is really interesting yeah because one of the things that stood out to me is Anne is a serial cheater right but there's a point when he finds out that it's bill he's like she broke two of her own three rules mm-hmm. and the fact that bill that george knew about those rules is like why do i feel like in to a certain extent 
It was the, kind of agreed upon. Yeah, like yeah. The, like it was sort of a proto poly relationship of. Yeah, he's a realist. He I don't he wants I don't to be like that you do this, mm-hmm. but this is what you do, and as long as you're not doing anything that's you know too close to me. Well, it breaks his heart. No, I mean, throughout these, oh, yeah, these he's... serial affairs that she has uh, kill him inside. And yeah. it finally makes him almost not recognize Bill for who he really is. And that was, of course, the whole point. And spoilers, I guess, we're just spoiling the hell out of it. Well, right? well right. Yeah. we're going to. We're going yeah. to. But yeah, I mean, whoop, that was part whoop, of the ploy. Spoiler alert. Yeah, that was mm-hmm. part of the ploy. You know, Hayden would bang Smiley's wife to draw attention away from Hayden. Yeah. To, to muddy the waters. To muddy the waters. Yeah. So Hayden, so Smiley wouldn't notice that Hayden was doing dirty stuff at And even the if circus. he did, if Smiley reported on it or tried to cast aspersions toward Bill. Well, right? it's just it, retaliation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the his George's relationship with his wife is very odd. And she doesn't really appear in the book. So it's kind of doubly interesting. No, you well, see her. You see her and she turns in the wrong direction at the end. Oh, you haven't finished it. No. Yeah. So go ahead and tell me. Well, uh, did you see the miniseries? No, I okay. saw the movie. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll talk about the miniseries too, but yeah. um, she, this might be a good way to enter into it or whatever. The, yeah. uh, all of the novel is, Smiley has Anne in the background and in the movie or in the miniseries, it comes up over and over again. Everybody down to Ricky Tarr <laughs> insinuates about the uh, the relationship. Everybody knows having. about it. Yeah. Everybody, even Ricky. Um, so by the time you get to the end of the miniseries, you have to have somebody of a really imposing stature to appear as Anne if she's going to be there at all. And so it's Sean Phillips, you might remember from mm-hmm. as Olivia from I, Claudius, okay. way yes. back in the day, a, a powerful female presence that can actually, um, she can pay off. Yeah. What she can walk in, she, she can walk in for a scene and take over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a scene that's not in the book. They have a conversation. Yeah. Um, and it's left unresolved as you might imagine. But in the book, he goes to where she's having her latest affair and she's agreed to meet him at the train station. I might be getting some of these details wrong or whatever, but he parks me, uh, or he gets off the train and he sees her looking for him in the wrong place and she turns and goes down another corridor and that's the end of the book so mm-hmm. that's um just another you're almost Missed there connections. you're just not there yet yeah misconnections yeah. and always looking in the wrong place and and this will reoccur in smiley's people too mm-hmm. why would you stay in a relationship that doesn't make you happy oh wait it was the 70s who's happy in this book <laughs> yeah, yeah nobody's, really. nobody's happy in well this the affairs book. that they're having bill seems happy well <laughs> sort of <laughs> Well, when you get the chance, watch the miniseries. I, pl- I plan on it. One yeah, of the best things ever. Oh, the the miniseries is amazing. Yeah. You know, first of all, you have Alec Guinness playing Smiley. Yeah. Um, a role that he initially <clears throat> turned down because he didn't feel like he was the right actor for it. Because Smiley's kind of described in the book as being, quote, frog-like. Mm-hmm. And kind of, kind of fat and schlubby. And, and incredibly nondescript. And... Mm-hmm. and um, Alec Guinness generally has this kind of a feet quality to him that he's very upper crust. Yeah, and and Smiley, Smiley is actually really kind of an ideal spy from a really realistic standpoint because um, I remember hearing um, the guy that Argo was based on that that guy um, that Mendez? you know professional actual spy Mendez. Um, I remember hearing him talk about. Um, what makes an ideal spy and it's you have to be completely forgettable you have to like just completely slide off of people's minds you have to be so ordinary that you don't even notice it and and smiley is kind of like that in the book he's just kind of well there's a there's a beautiful moment where gwillem 
drops him off after they've gone to see Ricky and he gets out of the car and then Gwilym has a thought to like ask him a question and goes to like call out the window and he's already gone and Gwilym says he had forgotten how quickly George disappears into a crowd. Yeah, just gone. He's just gone. And and the the beautiful thing about Alec Guinness when he finally, you know, accepted the role is he he is really good at it. I mean, he he's kind of defined by you know, first of all, these giant glasses that he wears that are just kind of awkward looking. And and second of all, he has this wonderful performance where he's he's extremely subtle, but it's almost a gentle performance. He has he he has moments where he's um he's almost kind to people, but it, it's just hints of it. But the levels of his performance are like from here to here. And I'm, I'm like gesturing five inches apart. Um, <laughs> dear Again, listeners. it's a quiet, yeah. controlled book. Very quiet and controlled. And, and Guinness is just so great at it. Well, I mean, and that's the reality of true intelligence work is, a, is something of data. Yeah. It's not about and gun it, chases and, and... And it's social engineering. And, and I... You, you get the sense that George's great success is he's able to worm information out of people by being so subtle and so unassuming and so, you know, non-threatening. I don't disagree with any of that. I think yeah. that's exactly right. Um, it's also kind of remarkable that he manages to do all that in the context of um, being much more expressive than the character in the book is. The yeah. book is completely internal, uh, not Always to Smiley, you get into Peter's head and you get into um, a couple other people's head, Mendel's head. But um, but for purposes of exposition in the miniseries, some of these things need to be said out loud. Something so something in the book that would occur in Smiley's head now needs to be expressed in words to Peter. Usually, mm-hmm. Peter's usually the person who's on the receiving end of of Alec Guinness's kind of semi monologues. Particularly in the first episode, he talks like a whole paragraph or two here or there, mm-hmm. and I'm like, that's that's uh, more expressive than the character in the book is, but otherwise there's no way to get this information across. Mm-hmm. And somehow Guinness manage, manages to do that while still seeming completely inexpressive and internal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the miniseries is really fantastic with the other characters too, because it really spends time developing them. Yeah. Okay. It, how long is the miniseries? It is six episodes. Mm-hmm. They're um, about 50 minutes, about each. 50 minutes a piece. So it's really just a BBC series. It, it, it is. is. It is. It is. And uh, man, they, they really are great. You get pretty much everybody who's really fleshed out in the book also gets really treated well in the series. It's one thing that just the benefit of space does that mm-hmm. now I like the Gary Oldman movie, but um, it just falls down in the fact that it doesn't have enough space to introduce a lot of these characters. Right in the book, in the miniseries, there are long scenes between Smiley and Roy Bland, and between um, Bill Hayden and all the uh, all the others, even mm-hmm. before the investigation starts, because Control has been trying to figure out what what's going on with witchcraft, and he sent um, Smiley to figure that out, and so you get a lot of sense of who those people are in the miniseries as the actors can engage with Alec Guinness because he's never able to once the once he's retired and the investigation um, mm-hmm. launches until right. the very end when he confronts Toby Esterhaza and then the and then the whole thing starts falling apart. 
Uh, and that's just a function of space. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't have enough space in yeah. the movie. And that's why I asked earlier, like, did she even understand what the fuck was going on? <laughs> because I had just read the book and I had just read the miniseries and we watched the Gary Oldman movie. I'd seen it before. I watched it again. I'm like, if I hadn't done those things, I wouldn't have known who the fuck is Roy Bland? They mentioned him once, you know, and yeah. it's, it's Karen Roy Hines. Bland. And I was yeah. like, is that Roy Bland? Well, yeah. Yeah. but Roy Bland gets like glimpsed in the movie. And well, that's about it. I mean, but, but if you've read the book, then you expect more. But I feel mm-hmm. like the yeah. the adaptation of the script for the movie is really well done because do I need Roy Bland to understand what's happening? I tossed that out as an example. I also thought Colin well, Firth was underused. You know, well, all of them, I agree. All of them, yeah. it, yeah. it, gets, it gets chopped to bits, yeah. but it still holds together plot-wise. It, and plot-wise, yes. I think I think the emotional gravity suffers because yeah. you don't you aren't invested in Hayden. You aren't invested. You don't understand where Alaline's coming from. You don't have any. Uh, context for well, Esther Hess. They do but, a really good job of making you hate Alaline, no matter. Well, what. yeah, because mm-hmm. he's an asshole. Yeah. But he's, but I well, mean, having Toby play him too is a great. He's just naturally an actor that you're like yeah. you're a little worm. Yeah. So in the movie, I mean, just because those those characters barely have any time to appear, you don't get the gasp moment of oh my god, it's Hayden at the end. Yeah. Well, and also. The relationship pre- between Hayden and Prudhoe yeah. is hinted at, but it's yeah, it's, it's mostly not... something that you have to work to fill in yourself, right? But going back to the miniseries, all that stuff is really fleshed out. Yeah, so you you get that the gravity of those relationships. the The miniseries itself opens with I think one of the greatest called shots, and you know the first scene of the miniseries is literally just a shot of an empty boardroom, and one by one, mm-hmm. the leaders of the circus come in. And, like, there's no dialogue. It's all just body language as they come into the room one by one. And it's like, okay, he he's the guy with the teacup. He's kind of stuffy. And he's kind of the blustery one. And, you know. and, and So perfect. Oh, and it's wonderful. And if you've read the book, you, you just go, well, that's Hayden. That's Aline. Mm-hmm. That you, you can just go down the row and you know exactly who they are. And then there's a line at the end, like, well, let's get started. And then credits. And beautiful. that's a, and it's beautiful. The director added that. I watched the interview with him because it's not oh. in the original script. Well, but, of course not. Mm-hmm. But because the script starts with um, uh, Control talking to Jim Preto before the Czechoslovak uh, mission, yeah. you only see the other characters on his corkboard. Or mm-hmm. You only see photographs of him. And they figured that that wouldn't register enough. So they added that pre-credit sequence there where you have mm-hmm. Ian Richardson and the rest of the guys just nice. being silently their characters. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. And giving you the visual. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. I, can't, I mean, I want to watch it. I just ran out of time. Well, it's it's at Video Universe, and it's as all as good things are. Back Indeed. in the day, before it was, before, these are pre DVD days. Mm-hmm. I had that was my holy grail was Tinker Taylor and Smiley's People, and I spent. I, I found a gray market VHS company in England. <laughs> That I spent, I think it was a hundred dollars each. I know, each right? Jesus. I got two DV or two VHS tapes each of them, and the first time I tried to play them, it broke. So I had to send them back, and they replaced them. But it was like weeks and weeks. I was waiting for them to be shipped over. I, like, oh, I finally fucking saw these miniseries, and so now in these DVD days, children, you we had it hard. But seriously, it's it's, yeah, it's really true. I there there are so many things. It's like. 
Well, what is that? Oh, I'll just go onto YouTube. Look, it's right there. I can see it right now. <laughs> I Hell, IMDb, you don't know, you kids, today. Back in the day, you had to just remember where you'd seen that actor before. <laughs> I had a book that was yep. all cross-referenced. That was helpful. <laughs> I had a collection of like third generation X Files tapes that uh, taped off the TV. Yeah, anyway, I had these mm, are the... Betamax tapes of Max Headroom. Oh, Ooh. good choice! Like a double whammy of eighties right there. Max Headroom <laughs> on Betamax. <laughs> wow! I'm so glad we're doing this 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 episode, ladies, because this is clear. This is one of my favorite things ever. Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. It's one of my favorite books. It's one of my favorite miniseries, or one mm -hmm. of my favorite pieces of television ever. By far, I think, the best spy thing ever produced for television, with the solitary exception of, and I have to plug this for your listeners. I know what this the is. The Sandbaggers. The Sandbaggers is amazing. Have you heard of this? No. It's so good. Oh give my me, God. Give what me is the this? opportunity to uh, sell me on it, Pat. This. It was being filmed at pretty much exactly the same time as Tinker Taylor was. Oh, yeah. It predates it by about a year. It ran for three seasons, six or seven episodes um, uh, per season. It's uh, it's a spy story in this vein. So oh, there's yes. lots of jargon. They work for SIS, uh, Special Intelligence Service. So it's essentially MI6. Um, the main character is played by played by Roy Marston, who if you ever saw the Adam Dalglish, P.D. James mysteries on... PBS. He mm -hmm. plays that character too. He shows up every now and then. He was on Doctor Who a few years ago. I'd probably recognize the face. Almost certainly you would recognize him. Uh, it was full of great British actors of the period, and every single episode is pretty much as good as Tinker Taylor. Yeah. And they're, but they're different stories each time. So the variety of stories that they can tell is remarkable. And it's all ugly old white men talking in boardrooms. You oh know, yeah, and it's just, <laughs> I love yeah, it. Hugely tense, incredibly uh, difficult to watch. Sometimes there's uh, a second season episode. I won't give away much of the plot, but uh, one of the it's called the Sandbaggers because it's the equivalent to the Scalp Hunters from the book. It's the it's the the thugs essentially yeah. the guys mm -hmm. you go over to do an assassination or something like the, that in, to do the wet work yeah, or the dirty work. work. Yeah. <laughs> the wet work, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's the equivalent there, and that's what the sandbagers are. So uh, in one second season episode, uh, our main sandbagger, Willie, and then a, a woman CIA agent that he's working on, they're coming back from Malta or something like that, and the plane is hijacked by Palestinian terrorists, and it's on the ground. And so you would think that would be exciting enough, except that almost all of the story takes place in Whitehall and in the offices of the sandbagers as his boss is trying to get people to do something about it. <laughs> Send in the you know, paratroopers, do something like that. And just watching the bureaucracy at work and how the different political elements start playing off oh. against each other and everything starts failing mm -hmm. is it, the most tense thing you could possibly imagine. And mm -hmm. every single episode is like that. Every Every single one is... A perfect little work of genius, and it would have had a fourth season, except that the writer, who everybody thinks was probably a spy of some type but has never been confirmed, disappeared with his girlfriend in a private plane off Alas the Alaskan coast somewhere and was never seen again. Like vanished, vanished off, off the, the face, face of, of the earth. earth. <laughs> Just gone. <laughs> I'm making a face, listeners. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. This is this is totally badass stuff. It's it's like the anti-James Bond. Yeah. You know, it, it it's a spy procedural. It, yeah. Like CSI which, for spies, you know? I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. 
I am going to finish the book, Tinker Tailor. Mm-hmm. I am engaged in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, I just want to warn you, dear listeners, it is a dense book. It so is very dense. It, it might be a book that you nibble at rather than gulp. <laughs> it's an it, it's a departure from him at that point, too, because his early books were much, uh, much smaller, much simpler. Spy Who Came In From The Cold is very, very stripped down, almost Hemingway-esque. Mm-hmm. But I think he started return, returning to his love of Charles Dickens at around this point, because this book is very Dickensian. It reads a lot like Dickens novels. Yeah. Uh, panoply of characters, mm-hmm. um, just lots of timeline back and forth and what and the beginnings and the endings and the there's a people are always doing shit i noticed this this time my taste has changed a little bit so i found this a bit irritating in the book like nobody can have a conversation they have Mm -hmm. to be walking across the smiley has to walk across the grass and sit on the the swing because lacon is walking too fast and a little bit later they get up and they walk and now they're on the other side of the fence from one another there's lots of novelistic business happening yeah. there just to kind of keep some interest happening in the prose and that, that got a little transparent for me <laughs> after a while but but i eventually put her aside because the plot is so engaging and the characters mm-hmm. are so great and the world that he creates is so rich and it certainly does lend itself well to a miniseries it because of that does. and and boy mm-hmm. that miniseries is very close to the book because literally a you know a new scene would open and go oh it's that scene Oh, it's that scene. Oh, it's that scene. And it and it and it pretty much plays out like the book did in my head. There are a few things that are switched around and I find I find that the choices interesting in that um one of the things that gets shoved way to the front of the miniseries is uh showing Predo's uh gunshot wound happen. Um Well that's right at the beginning of the movie too. It's right at the beginning, mm-hmm. yes, which which is doubly interesting because I mean that's the one point of like real like quote spy action that happens in the book and it's interesting that they take in both the movie and the miniseries they take that scene and shove it way to the front to kind of drop you into the action yeah yeah because in the book the first time you meet prido is him he's he's, as a teacher yeah yeah and you're you are kind of like why are we at a school? What's Who? with the kid? And who's this guy? And why am I supposed to care about this? And this kid is weird. So Prido, you meet him, and then you start learning more about him. And the Ricky Tar stuff is also a little bit convoluted in the book of like, wait, who's this guy? Where mm-hmm. are we? Why do I care about this? So it does take a little bit to get into it. I, yeah, you're right. It is interesting that they pushed that way to the front. Mm-hmm. There's a few other things they change, even for the miniseries, which is yeah. much more faithful uh, to the book. They cut out some minor characters. There's a character named Max, uh, who is the Czech associate that yeah. Jim goes on the mission with in the book. He doesn't appear in the book in the miniseries or the or the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I noticed <laughs> I was interested to discover that in neither the miniseries or nor the film do they manage to get ricky tar to hong kong which is where oh, his yeah. story takes place it was clearly too expensive to film yeah in both versions it's in lisbon in the miniseries and it's in istanbul in the film yeah but you're right I, I assume that this is sheerly a budget thing mm-hmm. it's too expensive to film in hong kong or anywhere they'd even look like hong kong and so they opted for some place they could make look like istanbul mm-hmm. one really kind of offhand comment about the miniseries i love who plays carla <laughs> 
because you see <laughs> Carla in the, you know the big the big Russian spy leader. You see him in one scene, and um, it's Patrick Stewart with hair. Well then, yeah, it's like oh wow, I don't think I've ever seen him with that much hair except on stage doing uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, yep. which was um, a long time ago. But when he played in I Claudius, but I mm. think he might have a wig in that. Uh, yeah. He had hair in when he played Claudius in Hamlet, Jacoby's Hamlet? The BBC production of Hamlet. Yeah. With Lala Ward as Ophelia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's been so long since I've seen that. Yeah. I couldn't even tell you. But yes, the I mean the miniseries is full of great oh, uh, yeah. character actors. Patrick Stewart is just uh, probably the biggest name these days. But Ian Richardson, who was in the original, <laughs> yeah. would be I guess in the original House of Cards, yeah, plays jo- Bill. Joss Joss Ackland. Joss Ackland yeah. plays uh, uh, Jerry Westerby. Yeah, who's the honorable yep. schoolboy of the next book. Yeah. Um, uh, big shout out for Michael Jaston, who plays Peter Gwillem. Oh yeah, who uh, us Doctor Who fans know as the Valyard from the Trial of the Time Lord, uh, but who I just saw in Foil's War the other day. So (laughs) I mean, he's been a working TV actor for forty years or more. He pops up all over the place, and he's terrific as Willem. There's a different guy who plays him in the Smiley's People miniseries, Mm -hmm. uh, but I think he's great here. No. You know, no offense to Benedict Cumberbatch. That's fine. That's fine. (laughs) I did find okay. So, um, it's. Is there anything more you want to say about the miniseries? Uh, I mean, it seems like it's pretty faithful yeah, to the book. Yeah, I I know. I think I'm I'm pretty much tapped out on the miniseries. Anything from you, Pat? Go watch it. It's full of great stuff. Yeah. Even the composer, Jeffrey Bergon. Oh, yeah. He's yeah. a genuine composer. He worked on Doctor Who, too. They all work on Doctor Who. <laughs> it's good stuff. It's one of the best which things Which is in the one world. of the tie-ins yeah. to the next episode, Quatermass, which... I'll be talking a lot more about Doctor so, Who. Yeah, imagine so there. Doctor so much Who. Doctor Who. Um, okay, so one of the, speaking of Peter Gwillem, one of the interesting things in the movie, in the film, is... Uh, it's Benedict Cumberbatch. Well, first off, it's Benedict Cumberbatch, but they decided to make him gay. Yep. Yeah. I find that to be one of the most fascinating moves of that script. Because what's interesting is that in the book, Peter Gwillem is constantly... Just pining after. Obsessing after his amour. Yeah. His much younger girlfriend. Much, much younger. Having a midlife crisis. I -hmm. mean, if it's even a girlfriend, I mean, she seems more just like somebody who stays at his place that he has sex with. Mm -hmm. Because he doesn't know anything about her and she's very distant. But yeah. So, I mean, maybe the point there is... I mean, why would they do that? No, I I have have a few ideas. Do you have a theory? I think think it's a very smart move on, on the... Uh, screenwriter's part because first of all um, it gives Gwilym an additional level of drama because um, you know at that time in Britain homosexuality was still legal right? Yep. It was well, still yeah, prosecutable yep. it, uh, Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, so, if I mean it was earlier but the whole uh, the imitation game Alan Turing mm-hmm. I mean yeah. And, and one of the things that the movie was doing in addition to being this really compact uh, retelling of a very dense book is it was also a look back many many decades later at a uh, at the at Cold War Britain basically uh, and so it was doing these you know from scene to scene it was doing these kind of really casual references to the sexism in the office to um, you know various 
social things that were happening at the time. And, you know, one of those things was how homosexuals are treated in Britain. Um, it's interesting, so it, it, though. It's, it's, it's interesting that they gave it to Gwillem. So, you know, he still has the drama of pining after somebody, but it it's the additional level of this is something he has to keep secret. Um, the other thing, I think, why the, the screenwriter made that choice is that the other homosexual relationship mm-hmm. in the book is something done by the bad guy. And, uh, you know, yeah. these days... You know the you know he he's he's evil and therefore gay is kind of not a nice thing to do in a modern screenplay if you're you know socially aware yeah so by adding an additional homosexual relationship to one of the good guys um, it takes the pressure off of that relationship yeah the only homosexual mm-hmm. in the movie is the bad guy yeah. Or bisexual. Bisexual. The only thing I'd add to that, too, is I think it floats the idea of homosexuality in the mind of the viewer, where otherwise it might not exist at all. Exactly. Because uh, of the limited amount of time spent on the Preto-Hayden relationship. Yeah. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you might not even might not even cross your mind. And I, I, and, I, and I think there's also some really nice moments that got added because you have both Hayden and Gwilym being gay. You know, particularly a scene very early on where they're both in the office, like talking about the new blonde in the office kind of awkwardly like hey i'm so straight hey (laughs) (laughs) what i find interesting is everybody knows about Anne, but somehow willem has kept his love life secret is he that much better at it is it just that people don't really want to know well Well, smiley clearly knows because he says there's is there if there's anything you need to take care of at home yeah, Smiley that. knows. So right. how much of an open secret is it? Mm-hmm. It is, uh, I mean, it's invented for the movie, so we can make up whatever we want, but I would suspect that it's a pretty much an open open secret. Yeah. But certainly Hayden's relationship with... With Prideau. With Prideau is pretty pretty, pretty much, much something as, uh, people know. Uh, but it is a genuine security risk as far as Smiley's concerned, because especially at this point in the Cold War, people were getting blackmailed by enemy agents all the time for being uh, for being homosexual. And if it were to come out that yeah, he it's had that weird that, time yeah. period where everybody knew people who were gay, especially in the British they, upper classes, and they didn't yeah. care, except. You could still be blackmailed for it because it was still shameful, even though nobody mm-hmm. really cared. It's a very strange well, it would, time period. If it's it was out, illegal. Yeah. And know. it'll destroy your career even if you don't go to yeah. jail, if it well, becomes known. Well, that's look, what look, I find yeah. fascinating, yeah. though, is that people didn't personally care, but it was still a cultural norm. This is well, what that you call nobody, British hypocrisy. Oh, I know, yes. that nobody bought into. Well, look what happened to poor Alan Turing, who was also played by Benedict Cumberbatch mm-hmm. you know, earlier this year. Is he specializing in gay roles? <laughs> I'm, I'm all Sherlock? Um, I'll get on that fan fiction right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, hello. Um... But what it does also do is the shorthand, and I will say this, the shorthand of having him turn out gay in the movie uh, gives you that shorthand blip of nobody is in a relationship that you really understand or that you really know. Yeah. Everybody is hiding something in their relationships. Everybody's relationships has an element that is hidden or unknowable or uh, confusing or shameful 
right? Relationships are problematic. So by having him be gay and having him have to get rid of his lover, mm-hmm. it it neatly encapsulates that idea of you don't know what's going on and you can't even be open with the ones you love. Yep. What's really sad is I think, you know, even though we just see Cumberbatch with his lover once in the entire movie. And for, it's silent. It's one of those yeah. sort of... It's kind of one of those scenes where music plays and we're just sort of getting a montage. Yeah, you kind of hear muttering as the dialogue, but it it seems like possibly the healthiest relationship in the entire movie. Yeah, I know, <laughs> which right? is really sad. <laughs> but yeah, um, I I find the movie really fascinating from a directorial standpoint because um, it's directed by uh, Thomas Alfredson, who is the guy who gave us "Let the Right One In," mm-hmm. and he's a very very subtle director and um it, it took me a couple times through the movie to is really to know it let the right one in was was a swedish one swedish mm-hmm. well i i know it's one of the nordic countries but i can i get norway and all of them confused but it's swedish and he is himself swedish yeah that's kind of perfect this is a yeah. novel that is so cold and intellectual mm-hmm. it's perfect for somebody Swedish well in particular with him but he can he, he's one of those directors who can really infuse meaning into a scene with the bare minimum of elements he's kind of like a, two the, people in two chairs talking to each other and somehow it's tense and engaging he's like the Ikea of directors but but no um you, you notice that nothing is ever told outright in how the narrative goes or how the scenes are constructed visually. Like you're in Paris, you see a glimpse of the Eiffel Tower. You don't get caption Paris 1970 or anything like that. When um, Smiley goes to see Connie, you know, earlier in the script, it's mentioned she lives in Oxford, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And the only signal you get that he's going to Connie's place is, I'm going to Oxford. He doesn't say, I'm going to see Connie Sachs. He doesn't say, uh, or like when Lacon is talking to him at the very beginning of the movie, talking to Smiley, it's not, hey, we're building a team. There's nothing outright said. This is what the plot is. Yeah, it's, it's a, all it's, demonstrated. Mm-hmm. There, yeah. there are so many moments where something is happening in the soundtrack that is giving you information, and there is a second storyline happening in what you're seeing, which is a yeah. really great way to keep it condensed. But oh, it means yeah. you better be paying attention. Oh yeah, it, it's really phenomenally constructed. I, I having watched it again because Melissa and I saw mm-hmm. it at Butnamathon, and I loved it at Butnamathon. I really enjoyed it. Um, Partially because, but Namathon is an experience where any movie that crosses your eyeballs, you are ready to just love it. Yeah. And But at the same time, so much of what we see is... Well, it, it's broad. Like, you know, it's 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 martial arts movies or horror yeah. movies or, you know, just Like really... exploitation movies or foreign movies. Yeah. And some, they can be very thinking movies, but to get a movie that is so quiet and intellectual is really kind of delicious mm-hmm. and so when it pops up everybody in the audience sort of leans into it like oh yay yeah ooh. this is like caviar mm, <laughs> this is oh so chewy and delicious i love it um so i loved it but Namathon, and then when i rewatched it when i started reading the book i'm like oh 
this is still really good. <laughs> I but love this. Now, now that said, I think the failure of the movie, as we mentioned earlier, is that it doesn't spend time enough time developing a lot of the relationships. Well, it's the failure so, of any movie yeah. that Partic- is an adaptation of a really dense book. Yeah, particularly the guys running the circus. You barely see them. You don't get to know them. You don't get the, oh, no, it's Hayden at the end. You know, you just don't get that emotional impact that should happen. Yeah, and I want to at that point play devil's advocate okay. against the movie for just a minute. And sure. I, I'll preface this by saying yes. that I actually like the movie quite a bit, too. But okay. I have some quite significant reservations about it. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what you just said there. It's um, that it it's stripped down, that you need to pay attention visually to what's going on. That's fairly, that's okay. But, Wendy, you talked about the, the depth and the texture of the book and the, the complicated nature of it. For me, that's what Tinker Tailor is. It is right. a complicated story about people and they're twisted, uh, I don't want to say twisted, but they're complex psychologies. They're usually divided against themselves. They have some type of conflicting loyalties. I love Anne. I can't be with Anne. Or, you know, Roy Bland, I'm a, I'm a socialist, but I work for the capitalist spy agency. Like, mm-hmm. everybody is self-divided on the inside. And that's really what the book is about. It's all of those people in endless combinations until eventually by the end of it, it has the structure of a mystery novel. It's mm-hmm. you go and you're in he's interviewing people and they're collecting evidence and that sort of thing. And then at the end of it, you come to realize what everybody always knew all along, even the reader probably, it was Bill Hayden, he's the mole, Smiley knew it, Preto knew it, Control knew it, but nobody was actually going to admit to themselves that they knew it, and that's how it all comes out at the end. Mm-hmm. And so for me that's that's the devastating power of the book is this huge amount of self-denial and the complicated um, qualities of the interiority of the characters, none of which comes through in the movie. Oh, as far I, as I agree. I totally absolutely, agree. Well, the movie is yeah. the plot. Yeah. The book is It's a very stripped down characters. version of the plot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The characters. Mm-hmm. Um, the book is really watching spies do what they do, which is take all of these details and sift and connect and work and sit with it until finally you start to see the picture mm-hmm. as it emerges, which is great and fascinating. They're two. I mean, it's two different medium. Yeah. Right. Well, then I, uh, but, but that's why I go, oh, but we have the miniseries, which does a, a, right. a, an excellent job of adapting that book to now it's television. And mm-hmm. it's six hours long, so yeah. it's three times as long as, as the film is. Uh, but to me, that's that's a more satisfying experience because it, it relates what the whole goal of the novel is right. better than what the film is. That that said, I think the film's take on George Smiley is fantastic. I really, I really like, I don't say he's better than Alec Guinness. I think he's channel, channel, channeling Alec Guinness for the entire movie. I don't, I don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. I think, I think, I think Gary Oldman Gary Oldman plays Smiley almost as a cipher. Like, he is so reserved, and I think he kind of gets the weariness of George Smiley better than Alec Guinness. There, there is a sense to... Well, how old was Alec Guinness when he played Smiley in the miniseries? Oh, goodness, I have no idea. a year or two after Star Wars. Um, yeah, who was 1980? It's probably around 60. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. But Oldman just exudes weariness. And and I think that's an interesting angle to have on that character. And also, I, I love that he kind of plays 
peekaboo with who he actually is through his face. Um, he, I, I think he really works with the director to hide his eyes because either behind the glasses, behind the glasses, or behind the glare of the glasses. Because when he's really revealing himself, like when he's um, telling the story about meeting Carla, which is such a great, story. which is fantastic, because you never see Carla. He, it, it, Gary Oldman, sitting in a room relating the story and talking to a chair. And it's this wonderful scene at where he's talking about how he failed this interrogation because he just started revealing himself. And as he's having this revealing of himself by telling this story about revealing himself, you can, you know, see his his eyes, his glasses. And then after the story is done, he's asked a question and then he turns his head and the glasses just glaze over and you can no longer see. Yeah. And and he just. And you can tell he's gone back into... He's pulled back in. Yeah. And the subtlety of his performance is really fantastic, I think. Well, and... And, and it's a, it's, I think it's, a, I think it's a, you know, a different take on George Smiley than uh, Alec Guinness, who definitely has warmth, who, and, and Goldman doesn't have an ounce of warmth in that performance at all. I mean, he's likable because it's Gary Oldman and you know him, but the yeah. relationships he builds with characters, you're like, I, wow. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I'll just have to agree to disagree, I guess. Oh, I didn't, that's I didn't, fine. To me, I, I watch them back to back. I watch yeah. the miniseries and I watch the movie like the next day. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it's, he's just doing Alec Guinness. To me, that's what it was. Okay. That's, that's what it Either felt Either that like or me. both of them yeah. were doing a really good portrayal of George Smiley. Well, there's and the character too. is coming through. <laughs> um, it's interesting how this is a very 70s story. Oh, yeah. Because the 70s were all about identity. And if you really think about what the Cold War meant was... This is our enemy who is just like us, and oh, yeah. we're going to pretend that they're not. But the reality is that they are, and we're all kind of depressed about the state of the world, but we don't know how to fix it or to how to have hope about it. So we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And that his whole scene with Carla and what he talks about there is a beautiful encapsulation of just that despair mm -hmm. of of that sort of 70 i mean the despair of mustard yellow and <laughs> olive green that's the 70s people those two colors just encapsulate it yeah that's one of the joys of the film is that 2020 hindsight on that entire era the ugly carpet of the soul the ugly the carpet. ugly polyester carpet of the soul the chunkiness of everything that they're working with you know the the technology, the telephones, the computers, the, the, the folders, the, the chairs, the, the the receipts for everything. You know, here here's the receipt for your bag and for the folder you're taking out. And, and it's just the... so clunky and awful. Yeah. 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 If you guys will bear with me for a yes. little bit, because I, I want to speak to exactly what you just said. I think if there are statements of purpose or theme in the book, there I think there are. I think there are two of them. I mm -hmm. think Connie gets one. And it's very close to what you just said. Um, she talks about her poor boys, her yes. poor boys born to empire. And now they don't know what to do because yeah. there is no empire anymore. And so you have all these people who are trained for very specific purposes, people like Prigo and Hayden, who now have no goal. And then later, much, much later at the end of the book, um, Hayden says, 
Uh, the line is, Hayden also took it for granted that the secret services were the only real measure of a nation's political health, the only real expression of its subconscious. Mm-hmm. And if that's not a clear statement of what the book is about, it's mm. talking about the nation uh, in microcosm. All of these betrayals in the secret service are reflective of the nation as a whole, which are in turn reflective of the human hearts of the people who are uh, who are doing it. And that's exactly what it is. These sicknesses and interior betrayals are not just for these old men, but it's mm-hmm. just everything. Okay, so yeah. there's one thing in the movie that I wanted to ask you about, you two, and get your mm-hmm. opinions. So you get all the way to the end. Hayden has been caught. He's in his little jailhouse. Yep. And Prido comes up with the rifle and shoots him and shoots him is that an act of mercy or of revenge it's an act of betrayed love mm-hmm. which is why it shouldn't have happened through the sights of a, the telescopic sight of a sniper rifle right is it Be- different in the novel it, it, it yes, is he different. kills him with his bare hands mm-hmm. okay that yeah. that is very different yeah. because in the movie when he shoots him it it's very ambiguous of because you know that these two were super close. Mm-hmm. You know that. Whether or not you grasp that they were lovers in the movie, you know they were very close. So there's it's ambiguous of is he shooting him out of mercy? The life you are about to live is gonna be horrible and I'm gonna kill you now. Or is it revenge? You betrayed me and allowed me to be shot and were gonna let me be killed and I was tortured. How could you do that to me? Well, I think it's closer to the latter. And it's mm-hmm. not even personal to Jim, I don't think necessarily. If it was you know, my read of that is that if it was just a personal betrayal, that was something that he could have gotten over. Mm-hmm. But not only did Hayden lie to his face, because they talked right before the Czechoslovak mission and he let him go to his death. But all of Jim's check networks were rolled up too. These are oh, yeah. dozens of people that he knew personally and had recruited a lot of them who are now either in Soviet prisons or dead, uh, and hundreds of other people. The entire structure of what Jim has been working for for decades well, he betrayed has been gutted everything that he by the person he was closest worked. to. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, every right to break his fucking neck. <laughs> yeah, know? which is what <laughs> happened. Yeah. Even if they hadn't been lovers. Yeah. But, Okay, yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. I I kind of I kind of do love the way the movie does it mm-hmm. because it does have that ambiguity which okay, yeah. leaves you which is different from the book, but I think it it has something all on its own which leaves you sort of questioning that maybe it's both, maybe, you know, what is it? And any time that I walk away from a movie where I'm like, "Hmm, Mm, that's interesting. I'm not sure what was happening. I'm going to think about it a little bit more, but it doesn't feel cheap. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, don't I hate it when I walk away from a movie not knowing what happened, but I don't really care. Like, because what you're just a shitty storyteller and you couldn't clear it up. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, Inception. I hate the whole stupid top thing at the end. I'm like, what is that supposed to be? Just what is, we, we've gone way. over that, yeah. but just just fucking clarify it. I can't stand it. Yeah. But this this feels earned mm-hmm. that the action happened and both things are equally likely. Well, you picked out a really rich part of the story uh, and one that's obviously open for multiple interpretations because the movie, the miniseries and the book all handle that completely differently. Yeah. In the movie, he assassinates him from far with a sniper rifle in the novel. There's a scene between the two of them where they discuss things like this and then you see him kill him but in the book it's never explicitly said that it's jim at all 
every right. again it's something like, everybody knows mm -hmm. and he did but we don't see it we don't see the interaction between the two of them yeah and we the, don't know if they talked about anything yeah the book the book is is like um you 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 know that Prido has left the school for a little while and then um Hayden is found dead and then Prido shows up the school again and in the <laughs> meantime Smiley thinks is someone following me yeah and but they can never find it Mm -hmm. So, and there, huh. and there's much to be said about, um, you know, uh, Smiley is really angry about the lax security at the mm -hmm. place where Hayden's being held, and but it it is never explicitly said that Prido kills Hayden. It's a hundred percent certain. There's no yeah, question. Yeah, you you know but... you know what happened. It's and it's heavily implied, but it's never directly said. Yeah. Which is also great. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to be said for multiple versions of a story. It oh, yeah. allows you to really take on different viewpoints uh, and see what maybe different media considers important, but also just the different ways a story can refract yeah. into different parts. And mm -hmm. well, in this medium, this is more important. And this relationship is what got played up. Oh, in this case, we're going to focus more on this. I actually love it when there's multiple versions of a story that you can go and kind of dive into and start bouncing them off each, off of each other to get a better picture of everything. Yeah, I'm with you. It's uh, If the movie was the only adaptation of the book, I would be irritated by it. Mm -hmm. But because the miniseries exists, now I can see multiple iterations of it. Mm -hmm. I don't object to a bad performance of Hamlet or whatever, because I know there are thousands of others that yeah. I could go see. Uh, uh, and so I feel something in the same way about this. There are a lot of choices that the movie made that I would not necessarily have done. I thought it was superficial in this way and blah, blah, blah. But... It's interesting to see how a particular writer and director and a number of really talented actors can do something like that. And it's very different from the other version that I'm familiar with. Mm -hmm. mm. Also, and I, I love that they're done over such a wide s stretch of time that one of the adaptations is done 10 years later, still within the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And the other one comes well after the Cold War and it's a look back upon well, it's it. It's like 2011? Yeah, 2011. Mm -hmm. So, decades later, period piece. That, that Sherlock thing is another great example of that, too. I, I grew up reading the Sherlock Holmes stories, and I never get upset about even really bad Sherlock Holmes adaptations because I've seen so many of them. They're just all over the place. Like, but, but really, you know, Jeremy Brett. Oh yeah, I there's, mean he's there's by far bad my ones. Favorite, they're good. But, yeah. They're good ones. They're you know they're different takes on it. Well, I like mm -hmm. this one for this reason, but I like that one for that reason. You just don't get upset about it. Mm -hmm. I I wish more yeah. great stories were done more frequently. That said, why do we have to reboot every superhero franchise every three years? Yeah, seriously. Yeah. So you know the book he wrote right before this one. It's one of the few I haven't read. Uh -huh. and it's his only non-spy novel. Okay. And it's called The Naive and Sentimental Lover. Oh, my. Oh. It's like a modern romance of some Not a romance novel in a yeah. cheap sense, but like a literary mm -hmm. novel about relationships. <laughs> in the cheap sense. You mean Are they erotica? Thinly veiled erotica? <laughs> I mean the mass market type. Is, that you, is Fabio on the cover? You switch out. Yeah, anything with a, a shirtless Scotsman on the cover. <laughs> Who doesn't like that? Woo! Hey, we've got uh, some listener questions. You no? know what's exciting? No, we don't. We have a listener suggestion because we are out of questions, which means you should send us answers to our questions. Gray I damn you guys. Gray Duck. Yeah, we Wait. got we got a listener suggestion from Gray Duck, uh, who is Carol Charisman. 
Oh, okay. And Carol has has previously answered our questions. So Carol has done his due diligence. Would you please answer our questions, listeners? Yes. Because apparently there's not that many of you or what? Or you're just lurking out there in the shadows, unwilling to identify yourselves like some sort of Cold War spy. <laughs> All right. Interestingly enough, when you said Grey Duck, I thought of one of my roller derby teammates who's Derby name is Grey Duck. Anyway, so this so was a, what do we got? This was a comment that came in from our site on episode forty-two, a yurtle of turtlenecks, um, <laughs> which I chose because it opens with Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is a love letter to a kind of espionage movie that they don't really make anymore, and it's astonishing in its detail. Also, it's one hell of a showcase for guys who can act the hell out of a moment that just involves a look, a quirk of the mouth, and a tilt of the head. I'm so very glad I caught it in the theater with a properly appreciative, read, quiet audience. Mm, nice. Also, uh, Carol gives a shout out to Noel Thingvall because he's the one who pointed Carol in our direction. Yay! Yay! Good taste all around. Love it. Thank you, Noel. Thank you, Carol. Absolutely wonderful. So. Yeah. So I think that's about what we got. Final thoughts? Final thoughts. I really like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Are they going to do the other two books? I will read. I will read more from that author. And I will definitely track down the uh, miniseries of Smiley's People. You can borrow it from me. Oh, yay. Ooh. Is the director. At some time. At some point, he was planning on doing the other couple of books. Ooh, do you wow. know if that's still happening? Uh, I don't know. I don't listeners? know. Listeners. If you know, listeners, please let us know. Yeah, I don't know. If you get a hold of that, I would like to watch it with you. One thing I would like to get my hands on is the soundtrack to the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy movie. Because watching it the third time, which I did a couple nights ago, I really like the music. That Mm. score is amazing. I hadn't noticed I was so involved in the movie. Oh, it's... it's, it it doesn't have a very standard movie score feel it's it it's just suggestive enough to imply the era but it's also modern enough to really have its own personality um, I'm very looking, nicely done i'm looking it up on imdb by the way it's not tonker taylor soldier spy tonker <laughs> just fyi Although i would watch that yeah the um Composer yep. is Alberto Iglesias. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've heard of him. Yeah, Oscar and other stuff. What mm-hmm. else has he done? He has done The Constant Gardener yes. and Talk to Her and, uh, let's see, Do-do-do. Thieves. Looks like, oh, Exodus, Gods and Kings. I'm so oh. sorry. As for me, I think, okay, this is going to sound weird, but I would like to read more Smiley. I think I would like to read uh, The Homegrown Schoolboy and Smiley's People, but I want to get actual paper copies. Mm-hmm. I read. I am reading Tinker Taylor on my phone in digital format. Oh Your goodness! Uh, borrow my copy. Yeah. Well, and I, I bought. Th- I bought my copy for a dollar from a library in Texas. Yeah, you, you can find it at any used bookstore in the world. You'll find a copy of Tinker Taylor. I, but I. But I sent out a call on Facebook. Who has it? And I immediately got in my inbox. Here's the digital version. I'm like, well, that took no effort on my part, and it's fine. Except I feel like this is a book that really needs like that paper format like just contextually as well as texturally it it needs to be analog yeah it really <laughs> does and there's something to be said for the ability to flip back that page and go wait what 
Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Oh, okay. Yes. And to highlight and stuff. So I want to read more, but I want to read more analog because I think that'll get me more into the vibe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I love, I love, I love chewy, thoughtful process, mystery, what's really going on mm-hmm. movies, especially when they hold together. Mm-hmm. When they don't hold together, then I'm like, well, that was fun, but it was kind of bullshit. <laughs> what about you, Patrick? Well, I'm thrilled to have a chance to talk about Tinker Taylor. Um, I'm, you know, I'm much more of a text guy. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to like the book first and then the miniseries and then the, the movie. But I enjoyed all of them. The book is one of Lake Array's best. A lot of people would say it's his best. Um, there's a couple others that I would say are equally good. What other ones would you recommend? Well, Spy Who Came In From the Cold. Uh, mm-hmm. a, a very different, very much shorter book. Uh, also a perfect movie, okay. as you said. Oh, yes, Richard yes. Yeah, fantastic film, guys. It's, but then it's I, great. Yeah, then, then I would also say that The Little Drummer Girl and A Perfect Spy mm-hmm. are... I, I wouldn't want to choose between them and Tinker Taylor. They're they're so close. I have I have paperbacks of both of those and I think they came from your house. <laughs> I probably did. I probably had multiples. Yeah. Don't ever, by the way, watch the uh Little Drummer Girl movie. Oh. With Diane Keaton. Oh. Mm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, don't All bother. Right. All right. Okay. To end on a happy note, watch Sandbaggers. Yes. Watch Sandbaggers, people. It's good stuff. Also, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. So, <laughs> listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. I have been Wendy, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Melissa, and our fabulous special guest star, Patrick Harrigan. Hello. Goodbye, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> and we hope you'll tune in next week when we talk about something else entirely. Yay! Woo! <laughs> thank you for joining us in the Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. Our theme song was written by Tim Wick and Jeffrey Brown and recorded and mastered by Chad Dutton. New episodes arrive every Thursday. You can find us on iTunes and on Stitcher. You can also visit us at xanaducinema.com, follow us on Twitter at Xanadu Cinema, and like us on Facebook at Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. I'm spelling cinema with a B. Ooh, that's exciting. (laughs) I know.